Overton Window podcast listeners have been treated to a wide variety of guests in the past, but only a few of those actually knew Joe Overton, the podcast namesake, before the Overton Window concept was born. In today's podcast, three of us who were will look back on the Overton Window concept and reflect on Joe Overton personally. Lawrence Reed and Joe Lehman are with me today. They are past and present presidents of the Mackinac Center. I'm Mike LaFave, Senior Director of Fiscal Policy for the Center. Larry and Joe were two of Joe Overton's closest friends, and their relationships with Joe go back to the late 1980s. I first met Joe in 1992. Joe and Larry, could you please tell us how you came to know Joe Overton? Well, I met Joe Overton when I got off the plane in Midland, Michigan in January of 1986. I was interviewing for a job here with the Dow Chemical Company, and Joe already worked for Dow, and Dow sent him to pick me up at the airport to make sure I got fed and make sure I show up, showed up for my interviews, and that's how we met. <laughs> Larry? Well, you met him about nine months before I did. I met him in uh, September of that same year, uh, 1987, but it was not in Midland. It was uh, in Seattle at a conference, and uh, I had just made the decision to accept an offer to come back from Idaho, where I'd lived for a couple of years, uh, to Midland uh, to be the first president of the Mackinac Center. And some people at the conference who came to it with Joe uh, and were from Midland uh, introduced uh, me to him. And I remember saying, oh, I'm coming back uh, in about three months and we're going to open a think tank downtown. And he said, well, be sure to let me know when you get to town and I'll volunteer. And he showed up within days of opening our office, uh, would have been in January of 88. And, you know, Joe told me that story because Joe invited me to that conference in Seattle to go with him. And I had just gotten married and uh, had used up vacation and didn't want to go on vacation without my wife after only having been married for a few months. And so <laughs> well, you and I would have met at that at that point in, in Seattle, yeah. except um, uh, uh, I said no to going. Uh, wow. So, Larry, recruiting Joe to leave Dow and join you at the new Mackinac Center uh, probably wasn't as hard as it might be to recruit some other engineer from Dow to come over, but could you tell me how you persuaded Joe Overton to join the center full-time? Well, I really didn't have to twist his arm. Uh, it was apparent that uh, I think he liked his job at Dow very much, but it was also apparent to me as I got to know him that he was very passionate about ideas of individual liberty and free markets. And uh, uh, I brought him on first as a volunteer in the fundraising area because we didn't have the funding uh, yet to hire him. And uh, it was in 1992 that uh, we brought him on to the staff when we finally had some funding to begin to build the staff. But uh, I think he welcomed the opportunity because he was so passionate about uh, liberty and free markets. And Joe Lehman, if I'm not mistaken, it was Joe Overton who then recruited you to leave a perfectly good engineering job at Dow and join the Mackinac Center. How did that transpire? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and everything Larry just said about Joe Overton's migration from Dow to the Mackinac Center, I remember from uh, from my perspective, it was Joe saying, you know, I think I'm going to do some volunteer work for this Mackinac Center. And then it was, you know, I... I'm thinking about going to law school. I might want to do more with the Mackinac Center. And then it was, I think I'm going to work part-time for the Mackinac Center. 
And then he said, you ought to come with me, Joe, to the Mackinac Center after he had made the move. And I said, no, uh, that may be good for you, Joe, but uh, but I love Dow. I'll, my exact words were, I'll never leave Dow. <laughs> 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 but he prevailed, uh, did prevail upon me uh, eventually. And in January of 1995, I joined uh, Joe Overton and Larry at the Mackinac Center, and, and we weren't the only three. There was a staff by then of uh, a handful or two. One of my favorite professional moments in working with Joe was when we discovered that the Michigan Education Association was contracting out at its headquarters for non-instructional services uh, like cafeteria services <laughs> and with non-union labor. And we made a big deal out of that, and I think the the, the press attention and the subsequent legislation that came after that, kind of shifted the Overton window as a direct result of that research. Uh, when when that happened, I think uh, districts across the state, there were about one third were contracting out for non-instructional services. And since that time, uh, and because of the legislation that was passed and inspired because of our research, it's grown to about 70%. So that's one of my favorite professional moments. And I'm yeah. wondering very specifically is once Joe arrived, A, what were your first professional, uh, you know, uh, pleasurable experiences with Joe. What did you learn from him? What was his, how did he guide M Mackinac Center strategy operations and or fundraising in the 1990s? Anything specific stand out? Well, you know, I was the uh, public face of the Mackinac Center in our earliest uh, months uh, because uh, for a while there was only a receptionist and me until we could uh, grow but as we grew, it became ever more obvious to me that I needed somebody who had a, a good uh, ear for uh, internal organization and management so that uh, I'd be freer to uh, hit the road and raise funds and be that public face for the center. And because Joe had a managerial background and was keenly interested in things like uh, uh, total quality management and, and some of the principles that uh, govern the best run companies, uh, I thought, well, he's the guy who can bring order out of the chaos here <laughs> and free me up to do more of the things on the road that, that a president needs to do. And he was absolutely invaluable at that. Uh, he really uh, built our infrastructure internally. Um, and then when he, we brought on Joe Lehman, who also had similar uh, characteristics and background, Wow, I had a management team that uh, I thought was second to none. And the three of us together, I think, was uh, a great constellation. And I'll always remember the phenomenal things that we did as a team as we built the center. Joe? Yeah, I, <clears throat> Joe and I worked together at Dow. We were both engineers there. And I, I guess what uh, I never, I don't think I ever would have come to the Mackinac Center if I had not worked with Dow or with Joe as an engineer. We found that we had a common interest in the ideas of, of liberty and uh, political economy, but it was Joe who really forced me to uh, systematize those ideas and, and take them to their roots. Joe was better read than I was in, in, in all of those things. And so I, I really looked to Joe as sort of a, a philosophical uh, guide for making sure that my beliefs uh, seemed consistent. And, and and really that was very important to us at the Mackinac Center because you know that, that was what we had going for us was our philosophical consistency. That's what made us different in the political ecosystem in Michigan. And when I hit the ground at the Mackinac Center in 
January of 95. It was only a couple months later in March that a project uh, Joe spearheaded um, just took the Mackinac Center's fame to new heights and, and made us a force to be reckoned with, even with uh, Republicans who uh, I think thought we were just going to agree with them on everything. But Joe, Larry, you'll remember this. Oh, very well. Joe spearheaded the idea of taking on the popular Governor Engler early in his first term uh, uh, regarding Governor Engler's industrial policy idea. He campaigned against industrial policy and corporate welfare. And then he proposed a program to do those things in his second term. And it was Joe who primarily authored our first study and it made headlines around the state and it prevented the governor from passing his legislation on the first attempt and on the second attempt. And finally, he got it through on the third attempt. That's when the public knew that we were truly independent of, of the political parties. Yeah, I think it was about that time. I don't recall if it was before or just after, but <clears throat> Joe also spearheaded our first in-depth analysis of the uh, state budget. And uh, that also sent a powerful message statewide that we were prepared to criticize uh, anybody in government who uh, was growing it without good reason. And uh, we pointed out that there were a lot of places in the state budget that uh, where we could make savings and serve the tax better, uh, taxpayers better. And uh, Joe was uh, the key instigator behind that study. Yes, uh, and that uh, that was a a study that again uh, caused our opponents to say, uh, I think our opponents respected us and it made some of our friends realize that, you know, our, uh, uh, we could be friends, but, uh, but we were principled uh, to, to start with. And the way that I like to think of the working relationship that the three of us had uh, was that uh, Larry, uh, Larry, you are great at having a million wonderful ideas, but they've all got to be done in the next five minutes. Drop everything and work on these million ideas. Now, Joe Overton had his million good ideas too, but you needed five or 10 years to accomplish any of them. He would come up with yeah. these grand schemes. And it was my job to sort of uh, wrestle both of your plans down to earth and figure out what we could actually accomplish. Well, the years long vision is a good segue for a recollection I have. Wasn't he deeply involved in the idea of packaging initiatives so we could raise money for the Mackinac Center in three-year chunks? Yeah, he yeah. was an architect. Uh, I don't know that it was exclusively his idea. I recall uh, working with him very closely on it, but it, the notion that we would likely uh, do better uh, at fundraising if we could go to people and say, uh, you have the opportunity to continue to give to us for general operations, but you can also help fund an initiative uh, and the first one was labor policy. Mm -hmm. But we very strategically uh, uh, came to this idea that, hey, if we're going to make big changes in Michigan, we have to work on labor issues since this is uh, a strong union state. And uh, unions have enjoyed some special privileges over the years that uh, we thought were not, uh, did not make good sense for the state. And uh, so we put together that first initiative. Joe was very much involved in, if not the key architect, where we uh, secured funding to hire for the first time, full-time policy staff, a director, as well as an assistant within labor policy. 
And that became a template that we use later for education and several others. And that was especially noteworthy in labor policy because that way of thinking, raising three years of funding in advance for an entire policy initiative, allowed us to attract Robert Hunter as our first director of labor policy. And he was Ronald Reagan's first appointee to the National Labor Relations Board. So you've got these burgeoning little state think tanks all around the country. And I don't think any of them had anyone on their staff of, of Bob's stature, mm-hmm. but we were able to uh, to attract him uh, because uh, uh, Joe was able to to make the case to donors and then to Bob <laughs> that, uh, that, that this work should be done at Mackinac. And early on, Bob put in writing, Michigan will become a right to work state. Yeah. And yeah. so that's, uh, you know, another fun part of our history. Maybe I should point out that another reason I think he found it attractive to come to work for us. This was uh, before we built our own building, of course. We were located behind Pizza Sam's here in downtown Midland. And uh, if you liked pizza, you couldn't ignore the aroma. So <laughs> Bob uh, was very good about taking a tiny little office uh, behind a pizza parlor mm-hmm. because he liked pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this might be a good time to take a little break from talking about Joe and actually ask you, Joe, about um, the concept of the Overton window itself. Sure. I first heard about the Overton window before it had that name. And the concept came from Joe Overton. And in the early days of the Mackinac Center, Joe was wrestling with a a method of convincing people to support the Mackinac Center because Joe and Larry would go meet with entrepreneurs and 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 Larry, you know, steer it anywhere. You know, I wasn't at those meetings, but this is what I recall the discussion being. You'd go meet with entrepreneurs and you find out, well, we agree on this and we agree on that and, and we all believe the same things. You should support us. Uh, you entrepreneurs should support the Mackinac Center. And they would say, well, why should I support the Mackinac Center? That's, uh, I agree with you guys. That's why I support good candidates for office. And so there needed to be a way of explaining how a think tank uniquely creates an environment where elected officials can do the right thing. And so Joe came up with the idea of a window that slides in one direction toward more government control and the other direction toward less government control. And when you look through the window, you can see a narrow range of policy options. And so so at the top of the scale, those are the uh, options for less government control. The bottom of the scale, more government control. The idea is if you're the Mackinac Center, you wanna move that window so that the only options visible, the only options possible are less government control instead of more. And so Joe actually created a little uh, cardboard mock-up of a brochure that had this sliding window on it. And it proved too difficult, too expensive to ever produce. We never produced it except uh, the handwritten copy that Joe made. But uh, Joe never called it the Overton window. He called it the window of political possibilities. Really kind of a think tanky name, isn't it? And we would uh, train other think tank executives and professionals uh, as to how think tanks use this window idea to shift uh, opinion, to shift the climate of opinion. And it was only after he died in 2003 
that uh, someone, I think it was you, Larry, decided let's name the window after Joe uh, as a way of honoring him. Uh, it became a very important element in our effort to convince people to invest in ideas, for sure. You mentioned, Joe, that meeting with people who heavily gave to politics, we did that frequently, but we had to tell them, look, we're not saying don't give to the candidates of your choice, but put a little bit of resources aside, if not most of them, uh, to change ideas. Because if you just focus on politicians, uh, you know, it's like locking the barn door after the horse has left. Uh, a 50 or 60 year old politician isn't going to uh, dr dramatically shift his ideas unless the public has shifted and tells him he better or he'll lose. And so the window uh, was very important to convincing people of that. Let me share some numbers with you about the window concept. This has gotten into at least the U.S. vernacular and to a lesser extent in Britain. This year alone, there have been 1,500 citations of Overton window in the press, public, uh, academic journals, that sort of thing. A few highlights um, on August 8th, Vivek Ramosway on, um, on, on a news program, national news program, mentioned the Overton window. Joe, you just did a BBC interview and it was uh, published in Spanish for the Latino audience or Spanish speaking audience. Uh, the top outlets this year that have mentioned the Overton window include Vanity Fair, the New York Times, Boston Globe, Seattle Times, Washington Post, Forbes, uh, um, the Atlantic, the Hill, GQ, the list goes on. Last year was mentioned 2000 times. So even um, uh, members of the uh, popular culture are mentioning it, Russell Brand over in Britain, Viola Davis, and the list goes on. So it really has be, uh, taken on a life of its own. And most people, I think, use it, the idea correctly, but have even have expanded its usage. As a, as a sign of how uh, it has matured and become a part of the uh, general political lexicon, in the early years when it was cited, I think authors who were referring to it felt compelled to add a qualifier or, or descriptor, you know, to explain what it is so readers would know. And now you often see it simply referred to as the Overton window as if everybody knows what it is. So that's a sign that it's really uh, grown. One uh, shift in the Overton window that I regret, deeply regret that Joe Overton never lived to see was the adoption of our right to work law. That would have given him a great deal of joy. Um, unfortunately, the window shifted back a little bit. Uh, in the recent months. And I was wondering if you could talk about that shift and what it means to Michigan. Sure. Uh, when ideas are <clears throat> brand new, they're, they're never embraced with open arms. They begin as unthinkable. Every, uh, every idea that we take for granted now, it started out as somebody's unthinkable idea, and then it became laughable, and then it became merely implausible, and then it became plausible, and eventually it becomes policy. And so this is what happened with Right to Work in Michigan. When the Mackinac Center opened its doors in 1987, it was unthinkable that Michigan, of all places, would become a Right to Work state. And only a think tank working with a time horizon longer than a two-year election cycle could shift the Overton window in, uh, in the uh, correct direction. And so in 2012, the legislature passed a Right to Work law, but it was in 2009, when the Detroit Free Press, in a public opinion poll, this is a lar the large uh, liberal-leaning uh, newspaper in the state, in 2009, 
even half of union households were ready to adopt a right to work law in, in their survey. So when the political stars were aligned, uh, that's exactly what the legislation did. Now, why did right to work become go from unthinkable to uh, something the people wanted? Because the Mackinac Center and our allies and groups that thought like us said workers should not be compelled to support a union. And all of a sudden it became policy. So now fast forward to 10 years later, uh, our uh, legislature uh, with a Democratic trifecta, uh, both houses of the legislature uh, and the uh, governor's office are Democrat. They repealed right to work. I don't think it means that the Overton window shifted at all because it still holds highly popular in the low 60s in Michigan. So what you have is lawmakers and the governor repealing a popular law. And I bet some of those lawmakers who voted to repeal it are sweating that vote right now because they'll have to answer for it in the next election. Larry, after Joe passed uh, back in 2003, you wrote uh, several beautiful tributes, one of which included a Bible quote from 2 Timothy verses 1 through 7. Could you talk a little bit about Joe's character and remind us of Timothy? Yeah, uh, that is uh, from one of Paul's letters, and it appears in 2 Timothy uh, as verse 1-7. And um, it, I, I found out after uh, he passed that that was his favorite biblical passage. Mm. And it uh, reads, For God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Well, when I learned that it was Joe's favorite uh, uh, Bible passage, it, it, it just struck me as, well, of course. I mean, it so beautifully described Joe uh, himself. You know, he, he was extraordinarily self-disciplined. Uh, he would plow on ahead no matter what the odds or the obstacles might be uh, because he knew that, you know, that's what people of solid character do. You, you work hard for what you know to be right, and the odds or the obstacles in your way should not be uh, a deterrent. That sprang from his essential character. Uh, I think I learned more from Joe about character and its importance than I uh, ever did from anybody else. And it wasn't because he gave lectures on it. He just <laughs> lived it. Uh, you saw it. He lit up a room when he walked into it. And people kind of knew right from the start that, wow, this guy is uh, straight as an arrow. This guy is as uh, honest as the day is long. This is a guy who you know, means what he says and says what he means. And all those other great elements of strong character, uh, Joe tried to live up to them. And he really did. Uh, he really was a fine uh, Christian gentleman of solid character. And it, if you were halfway awake, you couldn't help but rub off on you. Well, I'd like to share a thought on that as well. But first, I would like Joe to talk about uh, Joe Overton's character, because you had spent a great deal of time with him as well. And we're very close. I think Joe Overton shared everything with you. You were very tight. Sure, uh, uh, very close. Uh, when when we met, ne neither of us were married, and we we spent a lot of a uh, lot of time together, and then eventually working uh, together at, at Dow and the Mackinac Center meant uh, uh, just a, a lot of time. We we trusted each other, and you could say that about the the three of us. Um, and I wouldn't even draw the circle around the three of us, Mike. You you were part of that. I mean, one of the one of the reasons that you came on board was because Joe Overton believed in you. 
you know, there there wasn't necessarily money in the budget to hire you when that happened. But, you know, Joe and Larry were strongly convinced that, uh, well, anybody who could stake out MEA headquarters <laughs> <laughs> needed to be on our staff for the paycheck. <laughs> but the uh, Joe's uh, character, uh, that being one example, Joe took a bet on you and on me, but but uh, on you, that that bet proved to be a home run. You know, it was great. Look, look at look at all that you've done uh, for Mackinac. I I remember one time. Um, I guess our division of duties was such that I was really kind of uh, oh handling the budget and you know in, uh, internal financial affairs of the Mackinac Center and and uh, Joe. Uh, thought that one of our co-workers was deserving of a raise and it wasn't a particularly highly paid co-worker and boy it was tight uh, fundraising was a little behind and eh, the money just wasn't in the budget and so we decided yeah we just couldn't take the money out of the budget well the the co-worker got a raise anyway and it came from joe's pocket yeah, and the yeah. co-worker never knew to my knowledge still still doesn't know that and you know that's uh, we we can go on and on and on uh, with little stories like that. But I what I like the way I like to sum up the effect of Joe's character was that Larry, you said something close to it. You said when he walked into a room, the room lit up. But the way I remember it is when Joe walked into a room, he raised the standards of conduct in that room yeah. just by being there. Definitely. It, people just knew that about him. Okay, the two of you have both provided me with great segues. Uh, <laughs> so I did not receive a raise from Joe Overton's pocket, but I haven't told many people this. He actually gave me a bonus from his own pocket. So I received an envelope with a check in it written out of his account that was meant for me as a way to say thanks for your hard work. Because the, the, the Mackinac Center... Uh, didn't have the budget for formal ones. Well, you may recall when he passed in June of 2003, uh, we announced it, of course, on the website, and people had the opportunity mm -hmm. to post a comment there or send a letter about uh, the ways in which Joe made a difference to them. And that produced an absolute uh, stunning cascade of testimonials mm -hmm. uh, from people. And I learned a lot that I didn't know uh, about Joe, things that he was doing. So it doesn't surprise me at all that he was uh, paying an occasional bonus out of his own pocket. He was helping people quietly, privately, and humbly at every opportunity and never did it uh, for the fame or the fortune or the attention it might get him. And so much of it we learned about after he passed. Mm -hmm. Joe, uh, we've, we've talked about the past with Joe Overton and the Overton window. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the present and future state of public policy and the Overton window, and perhaps specifically to Michigan. Sure. Uh, we, well, I, I think all the time, I wonder what Joe would think about this or that. And, and you know, 20 years later, it really is impossible to know. Uh, people change and people change with circumstances. And, um, you know, if Joe woke up Rip Van Winkle like and and could observe things today, maybe that's a little easier to predict how he might react. But we've all been affected by the way public policy and public discourse has changed over uh, the last couple decades. One thing Joe uh, got right was he understood 
the immense transformative uh, power of the internet mm. and even social media. Uh, there was no term for social media in, in 2003, at least that I'm aware of. But but he he innately understood that those sorts of networks and connections would be made. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't have predicted every direction that it headed, but he knew change was was coming. I think Joe would be deeply distressed by uh, just the 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 coarse turn of uh, public discourse. Uh, the, uh, the 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 name calling, the lack of depth and analysis. I mean, uh, it, you know, it used to. It used to be when when uh, Larry, you hired me into the Mackinac Center, an op-ed in a newspaper was 800 words. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was tough. It was tough to get all your brilliance into 800 words, <laughs> but we did it. And and any newspaper worth the name printed op-eds because they were um, full of facts and they 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 argued a position and and uh, uh, left it there for the reader to respond to. Well, and then those op-eds became 600 words. And then the ones that still printed them, you know, it was 400 words. And then they just kind of went away. And then we got Twitter and now, you know, now we're down to kind of bumper stickers. Mm -hmm. It is very, very hard as a public policy research institute to adapt to an environment where people don't really want to, they don't have as many opportunities to be surrounded by well thought out ideas, they're they're bombarded with slogans uh, more than more than ideas, and I think I think Joe would have poured a lot of his energy not into coming up with new ideas on policy as much as new ideas on how to uh, communicate and persuade people. Because at the end of the day, we're in the persuasion business. Yeah, I agree. The thing that I think most about and I'd like our audience to know is the Overton window itself might shift in the wrong direction on us occasionally. But in the last 28 years at the Mackinac Center, I've seen that swing back and forth. But the steady march has been ever in the right direction. Now, Larry, you have been in the freedom movement since 1965, if I'm not mistaken. I'd like you to share your perspective. What are your views on the state of the world today and its potential future? In some ways, and Joe Lehman just touched on this, uh, we are behind where we were <laughs> 60 years ago. Uh, and most notably, as you said, Joe, in terms of people uh, wanting to understand and to know an issue in depth. Instead, they jump to a conclusion based upon what a popular politician of their persuasion may be telling them. And that's very unfortunate. Uh, in the long run, I'm still um an optimist and that's in part because i understand as all of us do at the Mackinac center how important ideas are and that they can change the world it's just a matter of getting ever better at persuading people of the good ideas and getting them to adopt them you can change anything uh, you can turn a nation around you can change the conscience of a country uh, just by how effectively you promote the right ideas and also um I think it's important to remember that people of solid character, of which Joe Overton was such a great exemplar, do not give up uh, on what they know to be right. It doesn't matter what the odds might be or the present moment and the temper of the times. 
you work for what you know to be right, no matter what the odds or obstacles may be. And you know that at some point when uh, we win, <laughs> people will say, wow, how did that happen? Where did that come from? And we'll be able to nod in satisfaction and explain that, well, back when lots of people said this could never happen, we said it could, and we didn't give up on it. And that's the that's the nature of change. Ideas, as uh, Victor Hugo said, are more powerful than all the armies of the world, sooner or later. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, and and so well said, Larry. I I'm am probably uh, the guy out in public who talks about the Overton window more than anybody else, and I'm often asked to give talks on how it works. And, you know, drawing from what I learned from working for you for 13 years and, and uh, knowing Joe for 17 years, um, I've, I've sort of I've, I've stolen liberally from both of you guys. <laughs> and, you know, what I what I like to remind people of and linking linking our work to optimism is say every durable policy that we have really durable so durable that you can't really imagine it going away let's say the idea that women should be able to vote women's suffrage okay that's only been around about 105 years in this country uh it was unthinkable before then absolutely unthinkable and pick your policy whether it is environmental policy or the union movement or women's suffrage or civil rights or the abolition of slavery or whatever those were durable public policies, and they all began with social movements that were fighting against long odds. Yeah, the uh, the original um, leaders of those social movements were laughed at, ignored, scorned, sometimes arrested, but they did not give up because they believed in what they did. And and sometimes that can go in the wrong way, right? We also had a eugenics movement mm -hmm. that was. A uh, began as a social movement, and you know, and thankfully that uh, people uh, thought a little more about that and saw where that uh, led us, and and we uh, we we switched that policy back. But if we're not at some level optimistic, we have to be realistic about our challenges. But if we don't think that we're doing the right thing for the right reasons, and that we can win, and that we have to, if we don't think those things, I don't know if we'll make social progress. I agree. This is a, a good note to end on. I appreciate that uh, optimistic final salvo. Uh, appreciate you both uh, joining us on the Overton Window podcast. Thanks for taking the lead on this, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, Joe. Pleasure to be with you again.